Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, my guest is Chris Wharton. He's in what's called peer support at Blue Bonnet Trails Community Service. But we're going to talk about today, you know, the nature of trauma and PTSD and other like, mental uh, issues like that. So, Chris, welcome and thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. Can you tell me uh, a bit about your uh, your background and how you got into this arena? And then we'll talk about Blue Bonnet. That's okay. Sure. Important to my story is that I was raised in Detroit, Michigan in the 60s and 70s, where my dad was a Detroit police officer. And so that's back when my trauma would have started. Although while it was going on, I had no idea it was trauma. And anyways, joined the army when I was 22, had a desk job for three years, so no real trauma there. Then I was a police officer for almost 30 years, just shy. Okay. You're a police officer for 30 years. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, as a cop, in Travis County Sheriff's Office here in Austin, Texas, just shy of 30 years. And then, of course, plenty, 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 plenty of trauma there with dead kids, dead babies, just death and destruction. Well, I wasn't going to ask you about that. I haven't been able to interview any anyone that's a police officer. But, you know, you already said, you know, people that have died, animals, people, et cetera, children is traumatic. What about dealing with people that maybe don't like you because you're a police officer or maybe you're just always seeing the worst of humanity? Like, what else traumatizes someone when they're a police officer? What else affects them? Um, Well, fortunately, I retired this October will be seven years ago. And so I didn't get the, I don't like you because you're a police officer attitude near as much as the police officers have the last five years, especially since 2000. Oh yeah. It seems like a completely thankless job to be a police officer. I wouldn't want to be one. Yeah. If I had it to do over again, knowing what I know now, I would do it over again. But if I had to do it now, knowing what I know, how police officers are treated today, I absolutely would never be a cop. Well, so what happened to you when you were a police officer? What did you notice in yourself and in fellow officers? What was it about the job that made it so difficult mentally? Well, you know, when you go through the academy, corrections academy, then patrol academy, you know, they teach you how to fight, teach how to drive fast and how to read people's body language to see if you're being lied to and whatnot. But they don't ever teach you how to how to cope with when you leave a call where two kids just drowned and you've you've dealt with that, seen the bodies and dealt with the family all screaming and crying. And the more family shows up by the minute and it's, it's just chaos and the death of the children's, you know, rough. But for me, what was rougher was the families crying and screaming at the loss. I would guess you're not supposed to show any emotion, but Did you, uh, like, what did you do? What did you feel when you were in situations like that? And what did you have to do to stay stoic, let's say, or to do your job? Well, you're exactly right. You know, the culture is don't show any emotion. So you didn't. And you just stood there and it was your job. And that's what we signed up to do. You know, that's one of the things, the stigmatizing statements is, well, that's what you signed up to do. And I don't know that I signed up to see dead babies and nobody 
in any type of training ever told me how to deal with that, the psychological aspects of what the job would be. They only taught us how to, again, drive straight, shoot straight, write good reports, and and to fight. But they never taught us how to fight psychologically for ourselves and for our partners after we saw the death and destruction that we saw. So what would happen if it was a really bad day with bad incidents and you go home and you know, let's say you have a wife there, and I guess the question of how was your day is not a is not an easy one. Would most police say like, "I don't want to talk about it," or like, "What do you do when you get home? How do you let go of that stuff?" Yeah, so when you get home, I think at first they'll ask, and then eventually they quit asking because your answer is typically the same. You know, how was work? Oh, it was good. Anything happened? No. And you know, I got in a, one time I got in a big old car chase. Turned into a foot chase, got a big old wrestling match, ended up in the hospital. And after I got released from the hospital, I came home and I didn't even tell my wife about it. And then she heard about it months later. And she's like, well, why didn't you tell me about that? And I was like, well, I didn't feel it was that important. And, you know, in the moment from talking to other cops and then thinking about myself is we didn't want to come home and talk about it because if you talk about it for one you're like reliving it and two you think in the moment you're protecting people by not sharing it when in fact you're alienating them to a certain extent so when i teach classes now i really encourage people to you know you don't have to share all the gory details but you know share with your kids or your spouse hey daddy saw um, some really bad stuff last night Mommy saw some really bad stuff last night, and it was some children who passed away or whatever. No details, but just let them know. And how can the uh, the family be supportive then of the police officer without making it worse, without asking them to relive it? Like It sounds like also, too, the family should be counseled on how to you know, deal with their loved one when they come home and they've had a tough day. Like, What advice would you give to families on how to cope? Yeah, historically, at least in my experience, and with talking to people is that, you know, more specifically with men, first responders and police officers and the female wife, the more traditional roles from years ago, when you get home and you've had a bad day and you walk in the door and your wife's like, hey, the drain's not draining, we're out of milk, you know, all these important things to her, but very trivial to you in light of what you've just seen. And so when you come in the house, all you hear is nag, 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 nag. Mm. And it's truly not nagging. It's legitimate concerns from the, the wife, but you've just dealt with real life and dead kids and you don't you don't care about a drain and you don't care about the fact that there's no milk. So you in turn get irritated, if not angry with your spouse, but you don't even tell her why. You just like shut her down. Mm. Yeah, I understand what you mean. Yep. So you, you, you mentioned classes that you teach. What are you teaching on and, you know, how did you come to this blue bottle? Did you create it or do you just work for the company or, you know, what's the story there? Well, so I started teaching back in 2011. I had a full-blown mental health breakdown in 07, had suicidal ideations, was self-medicating with alcohol, blacking out, drinking and driving, breaking my hands, punching walls. And as I got better, I was very angry at the sheriff's office for not helping me. And I started going to some classes and, and reading and whatnot, getting educated. And what I realized is the sheriff's office didn't purposely not help me. They didn't know what to do to help me. So I got over my anger, 
in bitterness and asked for permission to start teaching about this stuff. And they allowed me to do so. So I've actually been teaching about PTSD and peer support since 2011. And I've been through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of training that do with, have to deal with suicide, peer support, anything with mental health. And when I retired October 31st to 16, I was you now 54 years old, 53, something like that. So obviously too young to retire and not do anything. So I was mowing and weed eating and substitute teaching up at my grandkids' school, making no money, but it was fun. Blue Bonnet Trails Community Services had called me and said that they wanted to start a uh, program to help first responders. And they had heard my name. So they called me and wanted to talk to me about filling this position that they were creating. And Blue Mountain Trails Community Services in the state of Texas, every county is mandated by the legislature to have what they call a local mental health authority. And I think there's 254 counties in Texas. And so every county is mandated to have something set up for local mental health authority, MHMR, whatever you want to call it. And Blue Bonnet actually serves eight counties. So it, it's a 501, whatever, it's a nonprofit. And Blue Bonnet serves the community in eight counties, underinsured, no insurance, and they serve people with mental illness, substance abuse, and whatnot. And there's a lot of underserved first responders in the more rural communities, especially volunteer firefighters who don't have insurance health insurance and our, you know, plumbers, mechanics, whatever they are. And they're going out and serving and seeing the same things I saw, but they don't have health insurance. So part of what my job is, is to help support them, help find them resources, and also to teach, educate first responders, veterans, and their families on the signs, the symptoms, and, you know, trying to prevent PTSD to begin with by education. And then if it can't be prevented, um, which in all cases, it certainly cannot be prevented. I don't care how smart you are, what to do once you have it. How long is is too long to be a police officer? Like, for instance, um, you know, if you were like in Vietnam and you served one war, <laughs> okay, you served two, that's a lot. If you served three, you know, like you, you're probably not coming back as a normal person anymore. So in, in police work, how long is too long to be a police officer, you think, where you're you're so badly damaged, you're you're a mess? Well, my answer years ago would have been, well, the longer you're a police officer, the worse you're going to be. And what I've come to find out, you could be a police officer first day on the job and encounter a very traumatic event that traumatizes your brain so bad that it changes your life forever on day one. So I can't give you an answer other than it could literally happen on day one or it could have been on day, you know, whatever the math is for 30 years. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So how do police officers avail themselves or first responders of this program? Are they encouraged by their workplaces where if they've had a really bad day, 
at a traumatic incident to like immediately reach out for help? Or like, when are they told, you know, before they start the work, it's good to receive training or periodically as they do the work? Like, what's a good schedule that seems to work best for people to help them? Hey, let me back up just for a quick second. I thought more about that answer I gave you. It can be day one, but it, you know, that which would be a single specific critical incident. And then for other first responders, it's a cumulative thing. So 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, the time does make the difference. So I don't want to make it sound like it's only critical incidents. It's also cumulative. My experience is the last few years doing peer support and teaching peer support and teaching critical incident stress management and crisis intervention and, and teaching the PTSD classes is finally the cool thing to do. So departments all over the country are doing it. Back in 2011, it wasn't the in thing to do. So people who were doing it were kind of ahead of the curve. But you know, when I went through the Corrections Academy and the Patrol Academy, you know, we spent hours and hours and hours learning how to fight unarmed defense tactics, how to shoot, how to use a baton, you know, how to use different, you know, pepper spray, tasers, whatever to survive. But they never taught us one thing on how to survive the mental aspects of the job. And I'm happy to say that it's much, much better today. Still got a long ways to go, but it is much better. Yeah, well, what makes it better? Like, what's a program look like when it's in force and in effect? Well, what makes it better is the Travis County Sheriff's Office, where I worked for 30 years, we were mandated to go to 40 hours of in-service training every year. And that training might consist of three days of, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, three days of force-on-force force active shooter training, which is great training. Loved going. It was, it, was, it was fun. It was, you learned a lot and you learned how to survive. And you might have a day, first aid training, how to apply a tourniquet, how to apply a com- compress, how to do CPR and those things. And then there might be another day of legislative updates or whatever. So it was 40 hours looked like that. Well, since 2011, at least the Travis County Sheriff's Office, and I don't know what they're doing since I retired, but 2011 through 2016, part of that 40-hour in-service mandatory training, they were offering a peer support, PTSD, mental health type training, which was from Travis County. That was groundbreaking. Yeah. Well, what does the training look like? What are some things that you cover and what have you found that's very helpful? So the training that I get to present is, it's just a class that me and several other people developed created whatever you want to call it back in 2011. It was originally an eight-hour course. And then we moved, as moving forward, most places wanted it just to be four hours. But I invited a corrections officer, a dispatcher, a civilian employee, a deputy, and a detective while I was the detective. And we sat down and made this class together. So it would be all-inclusive. And now I teach the class the same class that I taught in 2011 and 12, I still teach the same class, only it gets better and better each year as I get smarter and become, and, and videos and, and, and more information, newer information becomes available, the class becomes better. But I, my class that I teach is super basic, and part of the class, it's four hours, and a, quite a bit of the class is a good hour of it. It's just me sharing s- several stories of what happened to certain officers because of critical incidents or cumulative stress and how it affected and basically ruined their lives, it ruined their families, and drove one of them to kill himself on duty. So I share those stories because I want the class, the audience, to know how serious this is. I talk about triggers. I talk about how your childhood 
affects what's going on today. I encourage people to look up adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, and review that and read that and see what adverse childhood experiences they may have experienced as a child. And then just as importantly, if not more importantly, is to point out to the first responders some of the adverse childhood experiences they're exposing to their own children unintentionally. But it happens. And, you know, when I do a one-on-one with a first responder and they tell me, yeah, I kicked the heck out of my dog the other day. And they go, I feel bad about it. And I go, well, who saw you do that? And they're like, well, my kids are standing there. And I'm like, well, you just exposed your children to adverse childhood experiences. And I've had big old burly cops and firefighters just start bawling because they realize that they just repeated the cycle, so to speak. So adverse childhood experiences, I encourage everybody to read up on that. Why do people become police officers that you've seen? Like, is there an irony here that people that have adverse childhood experiences tend to become police officers more often? Or is there no uh, difference in the general public and police officers? That's a really good question. I, I don't know that I've ever thought about that. I think people become police officers in the last 15, 20 years, maybe for different reasons than I did back in the 80s. When I became a police officer, the pay was terrible, but I wanted to be a police officer. Well, nowadays, police officers get paid a lot of money and have really good benefits. So there's literally police officers now who are just doing it because it is a way to financially support their family. And that's not to say they don't care about the job and that they don't love their job, but you know, for me, when I started, you know, I probably could have got on food stamps because I, I got paid so little. But, you know, in the you know, I think still even the ones that join nowadays because the pay is good. I still think that, you know, we do it because we want to help our community, you know, for the, all the stereotypical cheesy reasons. You know, I want to help my community. I want to help people. I want to support people and whatnot. You know, what so I started. You see um, a lot of people come to the job with a messed up childhood already. Or does it not seem, again, they don't seem to be any different for regular folks? Well, don't. when I started in the 80s and through the 90s and the 2000s, I can tell you I heard many, many people talk about their childhoods. So I could only assume that, at least in my case, my childhood had a whole lot to do with how I processed or didn't process psychological trauma as an officer. So I would say that thinking back, most of my partners when I talked to, there was a lot of talk about abuse, being abused. Okay, so it does seem to to be maybe that you know police officers tend to come from backgrounds that where there was abuse more often than not. I can't give you any proof or statistic on that at all. Oh no, but problem. I but I also know that I've had officers tell me, yo, what I my opinion is the best cops that I've ever met were the ones that lived on the line as kids and teenagers between not going to jail and going to jail, and they were they're the best cops. And I did not live on that line. I never even came close to going to jail. I think I was a good cop, but I know I wasn't the best cop. What makes a good cop in your in your observation? Well, as far as good guys and bad guys go, you know, somebody who had a lot of experience as a child and it was exposed to a lot, you know, street smarts is what I call it. They make good cops. People who were never exposed to anything had a, you know, K through 12 education and everything was hunky dory and they, they didn't have any abuse in their lives, whatever. And then they went to college. Everything still was pretty good. They become cops. Typically they promote higher because they're educated and, and smart, but they don't always make the best cops as far as dealing with the general public. 
they don't have as much street savvy. Hmm. So is it perversely, is it better if someone's had, you know, run-ins with the law, like you say, and, uh, and childhood trouble, does that make them a good police officer then? Or I would guess there's probably a, a fine line. If someone's had a lot of trauma and a lot of trouble, they would not be a good police officer. But if they've had some, it's better than none. Yeah. Again, you know, this is all speculation on my part. I can't prove anything. But literally some of the best cops I ever met were cops who were borderline hoodlums themselves when they were kids. And when they became cops, they could see things that a guy like me couldn't see because they had that firsthand experience. Gotcha, yeah. What happens, uh, you know, like, it was very instructive when you told me, like, uh, you know, someone sees something terrible, they come home, and they'll say their their wife asks them <laughs> something really simple, and they're like, come on, you know, in their mind. What happens to a police officer when they become traumatized and then they have to deal with a situation that's no big deal, a traffic ticket or, you know, some low-level thing? Does that make them kind of, like, rougher and meaner to, to incidents that are very minor because they've seen such serious incidents? So maybe they're like, come on, this is nothing. A little bit of inconvenience. I've seen, you know, people killed. That's a big deal. This is nothing. Yeah, I actually talk about that in the four-hour class that I teach, what you just said. And that's exactly right. I say I go to, and when I and I pose it as a question and when I teach my class, and I go, okay, how many of y'all have been to a child death? And of course, everybody raises their hands. And I go, what was the worst part of the child's death other than the fact that the child was dead? And they go... A lot of times it's, well, the family, because the screaming, the crying, and, you know, grandma's showing up, auntie's showing up, you know, all the family showing up, and all the the hysteria that goes with that. That's very traumatic to officers and firefighters, and well, all first responders. And then I, so the question I posed to the class, I was like, when you're done with that call, and you still have six hours on your shifts left, what do you do? And the hands will go up in the class and they'll be like, ah, I go get a Coke at 7-Eleven. Oh, I go take my next burglary call. I go, you know, the, the it runs the gamut of what you do for the next six hours. But the answer is never, I get debriefed by somebody to process what I just saw and heard. Mm-hmm. That's never the answer. And, and so it becomes a matter of fact that I go see a kid drown or a kid burned up in a fire. And then when I'm done, I get on the radio and code we use here is I'm 10 eight. It means I'm back in service. And then the dispatcher's like, okay, well, I have four calls lined up for you, but they're all prior thefts or burglaries. And you get to that house and the man or the woman is crying and they're telling you, I feel victimized and I feel violated. And you look at them and now Chris Orton at 60 years old can say, well, they were victimized. And they were violated. Somebody broke into their house and stole their stuff. That's horrible. But in that moment, you're like, are you serious? I just left a family who lost a six-year-old and you're worried about a freaking TV. And that's where cops get in trouble because they say that and their behavior is inappropriate with that citizen. And it's not because the cop's a jerk. It's because the cop is just overwhelmed with trauma. And then they say something and it's not because they don't like the person or they don't you know, value what a person's gone through, but they just left the scene of a dead child. And that's a lot. That's a whole lot. There's a, I want to say it was in Georgia. It was, it made the news four five, six years ago, but a police officer was at an intersection and there was a bunch of kids, teenagers acting like fools. And the officers had been dispatched to it. And one of the officers ended up pulling his gun and pointing it at these teenagers to gain control. 
And this officer got in a lot of trouble because these kids weren't doing anything that would have required deadly force on his part. Anyways, the backstory to that is that shift, he'd already dealt with two suicides. And now, so he saw two dead people, he saw the families, and now he's dealing with a bunch of kids who have no respect and no manners. And his brain is not functioning on all eight cylinders because what he just saw, and this guy pulled his gun out and he got in trouble. And once you hear the backstory, you go, oh, I get it. I totally get it. Not excusing his reaction, but I get it. Yeah. No, I remember when I was like 16 or 17 in New York and uh, I was with some friends in a car and we got sandwiches and I guess we weren't in a great area of town where we were parked like near a bridge and the police came and they literally put guns to our heads. You know, they were like, what are you doing? And I was like eating a sandwich and they like put it down really slowly. And it was a messed up experience, but I guess now I have some, um, you know, some idea of who knows what those, those people were going through on a regular basis to do that. It was ridiculous, but, you know. In, in addition to what you just said, you don't know what the officers were dispatched to. They might right. dispatch to a carload of kids with sandwiches and guns. That may have been the information they got. Right. Yeah. They had no, you know, and I'm sure they were, they were dealing obviously with really bad stuff to do that. They were like, you know, very suspicious and everything. Luckily everything was good, but don't forget that experience. No, you know, and that is an adverse childhood experience for you. Yeah. So, so what have you learned would be the best thing to do? Let's say an officer again, sees something terrible on their shift. Is it better for them to call it quits for the day and be briefed and then for a week or two just go to minor type calls or what what have you found is the best thing to do? Everybody's different. You know, you're different based on a lot of times what your adverse childhood experiences are. And to send somebody home and say, okay, just chill for two weeks might not be the right answer for one officer when that might be just what the doctor ordered for another officer. So it's a really fine line. And then, of course, if you give the officer the choice, typically going to say, oh, I'm good. I'll keep working because of stigma. They don't want to be stigmatized. They don't want to leave the shift short. They get in a car accident, a fleet car accident in their patrol car, and they go to the ER and the doctor says, hey, I need you to rest for a week or two go to physical therapy and take muscle wraps and some pain medicine, the cops will do that. And then when the cop gets home, his partners will come visit him after shift to check on him and will or call and say, hey, bud, how you doing? But if he goes home because he witnessed a death, nobody's going to come by and visit him and nobody's going to check on him because we treat psychological trauma so different than physical trauma. But in saying that, it is getting better every day. What do you see are the best elements of the training that you've helped put in place? Well, I think just my training is so, so basic. So I call it PTSD 101. It's just very basic. And it's to just give some very basic information on the signs, the symptoms. I mean, we all know what the causes are. And for me, what I believe is the best medicine, so to speak, is to be able to talk about it, to debrief. And whether that's with your partner, whether if that's with your shift during a critical incident stress management debriefing and y'all debrief together, or it's just one-on-one. It's not necessarily best to have a, a PhD psychologist or a master level therapist. Not that those, those are very important people, very important people, but they're not always necessary. 
a guy who's been a patrol deputy for 20 years, if you say, would you rather talk to Chris Orton, who's been there and done that, or a PhD or a master level therapist, typically they're going to say, I want to talk to Chris Orton. I can't offer the same help that the educated, the professional can, but I can offer some, yeah, I've been there, dude. I remember when I went through that, it sucked. And the person realizes they're not alone. Right. So it's, it's really a team effort. I think having the peers is very important, but I think having the professionals is just as important. Um, when this program started to be enacted with the level of complaints, did, did they go down against the police in general? Like, were there un- unintended uh, benefits? And like, what did you observe? I can't give you any statistics from where I work, nor can I give you statistics from any other agency. But when I started doing my research in 2011, as I talked to people who'd been doing peer support since even the 90s, they said that their internal affairs investigations, their assault family violence, arrest of officers for you know blowing up and hitting their spouse, their DWIs, where the officers were the the DWI, the drunk, driving while intoxicated person, the level of all those things go down with the education of PTSD and peer support. And That's great. yes, and I can't give you statistics other than I've heard many, many people tell me that, and these are people who I trust, so I have to believe it. Yeah. No, I'm sure. Sure. Was it a, a can you tell if it was a dramatic decrease or just the little one? I mean, it was enough to be noticeable, obviously. Yeah. So, yeah, I couldn't tell you dramatic or not, but I'm what that guy who believes if it keeps one person from getting a DWI or assaulting their spouse or killing themselves, it's a success. Are there any plans for other departments and other jurisdictions to emulate this program? Like, do you guys reach out and showcase the work that you're doing so other departments could do it too? Well, there's departments all over the country doing what I do, what we do, I should say. It, again, I, I told you a little while ago, it's the it's the it's the in thing to do. And when I say in, that's not me saying they're doing it to be cool. They're doing it because people are getting educated, and chiefs and sheriffs are going, "Wow, this is really important. We need to do this." So, you know, I, to to say people might emulate what I do or what we do, eh? I don't know. I. I'm that guy. I'm, 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 I'm learning every minute of the day. Um, as much as I think I know, I could hear somebody at Round Rock or Georgetown Police Departments, which are bigger suburban police departments around Austin. Right now, they don't need me because they have their own programs. I'm more to support some of the agencies who don't have the funds or don't have the, the manpower to to do these things so i'm happy to say it's much much better well what type of first responders have the most trauma you know like maybe a homicide detective versus paramedic fireman or a sheriff versus a highway patrol like what what is it like for these different kinds of positions the level of trauma that you've seen so i'm gonna kind of go back to one of the answers that i've already given the trauma many times depends on what your adverse childhood experiences were or are what your history is and, and stuff like that. Um, what I can do is email. I should have emailed it to you sooner, but I didn't. Even, never dawned on me. Back in 2011, the Department of Justice did a study, and they called experts from all over the United States to be part of this study. And the study started off with how child abuse cases affect child abuse detectives. Well, the people who were doing the study quickly said, you know what, this study should not be about child abuse detectives. It should be about police officers in general. 
And so that's where the study went. And it's about a 13, 14 page report, but somebody who's much smarter than me and who was smarter was a part of the study years ago, bullet pointed the three recommendations that came away from that study. And most departments never heard of the study. I guess it just, I don't know, they do studies and I guess they don't put them out there. Or maybe when they put it out there in 2011, nobody paid attention because it wasn't the thing to do. But the Department of Justice study, the three recommendations were this, to provide all employees. So I'm not saying police officers. I'm not saying dispatchers, all employees, secretaries, custodians, everybody, because your custodians and your, and your secretaries, they're walking around these buildings and they're seeing and hearing stuff too. They're hearing detectives talk about things. The people who do data entry or the people who are looking at the pictures and, and entering them in the computer, they're seeing stuff. So the Department of Justice said provide all employees easy access to trauma-trained-based therapy therapist. Okay, that's one. Another recommendation was provide all employees with PTSD trauma-type training, which is the four-hour class that I do. And it could be any any class. It's not just the class I teach. And the third recommendation, and these were in no specific order, the other recommendation was to form peer support teams. So what I've found is many, many departments have formed peer support teams, so they've checked that one off. Many, many departments have gotten contracts with skilled psychologists, therapists, and whatnot who have first responder knowledge. So they're they're checking off the provide easy access to trauma-trained-based type therapy therapists. The one that most departments are missing the boat on is provide all employees with PTSD-type training. So I don't even remember what the question is. I think I answered it, but I don't remember the question. Yeah, you said that the Department of Justice suggested that everyone associated with first responders get this help, not just the people in the field. And it makes sense why, because you said people in the office may just be doing data entry, but they see enough pictures of you know, people that are dead or murdered or whatever. It gets to you where they write up enough notes about what happened. It gets to you. So I understand. It makes sense. We had a, uh, a lady at the sheriff's office. Her sole job, eight hours a day, five days a week, was to fingerprint registered sex offenders. She didn't have to talk to them. She never had to talk to them other than basic questions. And she had a full-blown mental health breakdown. And she ended up getting fired. And this woman was armed. When you fingerprint somebody, you can't help but bump elbows. And she was bumping elbows with child molesters and rapists every day, all day. And it took a toll on her. But because she was a civilian employee, and I'm using my finger air quotes, and all she was doing was fingerprinting people, how could that be traumatic? Well, maybe it had something to do with her adverse childhood experiences. Maybe she was molested, raped, abused as a child. I don't know. And that's where the administrators need to start using that adverse childhood experiences as a serious thing to think about. Well, one thing that tells me from your example is if that was her full-time job, there were enough people where it had to be her full-time job. So I could imagine she might think, oh my God, everyone's a sex offender. Everyone's, they're everywhere. I see uh, 30 a day. Holy cow, I didn't realize there's so many people in this one area. And I can see why it would traumatize someone too, you know? 100%. And you, when, when, you're, when you're exposed to that all the time, you can begin to lose your faith in humanity. And you can. It's hard. You know, you get to a point where you think, you know, as a police officer, you know, police officers walk into restaurants when they're off or stores and their heads just on that proverbial swivel and they're scanning and looking for everybody and everything. 
because all they see is bad stuff all the time. You know, firefighters and EMS, not as much. You know, most people, when they see fire or EMS, they're happy. Most people, when they see cops, they're not happy. But, you know, PTSD is for everybody. Dispatchers, secretaries, corrections officers, it runs the gamut. Yeah, no, very interesting. I, I spoke to a lady named uh, Nancy Sherman, and I don't know if she coined the term, but she talked about moral injury. It sounds very familiar, like, to you know, to PTSD. And she was focused on the military because, you know, I'm sure you could guess they, they see all kinds of horrible things, too, if they're in combat. So they have tremendous PTSD and problems and all that. But it's just an interesting term I heard about. Sounds like the same applies here, well, you know, PTSD or, or moral injury. Yeah, well, the moral, the moral injury for me is the soldiers doing their job and following orders and they're killing people. That's, but their, their religion or their faith or their belief system may be thou shalt not kill or whatever their belief system is so that their morals are tested. Even though they're following orders, their morals are still tested. My dad shot and killed a guy back in 67 in Detroit and everything was justified. Everything was good to go. You know, he didn't get in any trouble, whatever, but it affected my dad for years. And what you just said, I've not heard that term before, but thinking about what my dad went through, I guarantee looking back, that was a moral injury or what, because my dad was raised as a Christian and one of our commandments as Christians is you not kill. Yeah, just like if someone was a prostitute for 10 years and then they got out of it, it would be very hard for them, I would guess, to have normal relationships because of what they had done for so long. So it's a, they've injured themselves by their profession, not saying they're a bad person or anything. But so I, I guess when I got to talking to this lady and what I could see in speaking with you is like some professions inherently that could happen to you very easily as well as PTSD. So these programs are like critically important is what I'm seeing. Yeah. And something I've learned over the last 10 years or yeah, probably 10 years is I really struggle with the word prostitute anymore and that that was their job or what they did because I've I've learned so much about human trafficking and people being forced to do these things. And I'm just, what you, the morality part of it, I, I hear what you're saying, but when you said that's what they do for a living, at least I think that's what you said. So many of them don't have a choice. Okay, I understand. Yeah, maybe a better example would be a stripper or something. Maybe that's more voluntary, but yeah. yeah. And again, I'm not saying these are bad people by any means. I don't know why, you know, the people that do that are engaged in sex work do it. But like you said, a lot of them are forced. But regardless, you know, it messes them up mentally. I guess is like a street way of saying it. Well, and. Yeah, and and I know you didn't think, say they were all bad people. I know you didn't say that or think that. But again, I'll bet if you, Chris Orton's, you know, I don't have a minute of college, so who knows? But I'll bet if you went and interviewed somebody, a professional interviewed strippers, I'll bet you the vast majority of them were abused one way or the other as children. Mm-hmm. That's just Chris's thoughts. I have nothing to base that on except that's my opinion. Well, that leads to another question. So you said like in class, you'll ask people if they had an adverse childhood experience. So do you see that everyone you've spoken to has adverse childhood experiences? Like how common is that amongst the populations you work with? The population I work with in as fellow first responders? Yes. Yeah. Based on conversations I've had with people, it's very common. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. So what is the, uh, what's the future of, of your program and of other programs like this? What's left to be done to make it better and better and better? 
I think what would make it better, better, better is more, more, more. I mean, the information is what it is. I think the information needs, though. So at, at the Travis County Sheriff's Office every year, they would teach us first aid and CPR because it's that important. And at training, people would be like, oh my God, we just did this a year ago. And I wouldn't say it out loud because I didn't want to come across as a goober, but I always enjoyed doing it. Not because I enjoyed the training, but I was like, man, if my dad or one of my brothers has a heart attack at Christmas and we're all together, I'm going to be able to take care of business. And I, my hope that PTSD 101 training, again, that's what I call it. It's called all kinds of things, but I want that training to be second nature for a person to say, oh, Deputy Jones just dealt with four teenagers burned up in a vehicle and they're all dead. We're not, he's not going to the next call without talking to somebody or without a debriefing or with something. So to me is make this type of training, even if it's just four hours a year, so it's always fresh on our minds. I think that would be huge. And it's, it is, it's all about education. Everything's about education. And the stigma of mental health is so different today in the first responder world than it was just five years ago and way different than 20 years ago. I was mocked and ostracized back in 07 by many people, many people, people I considered my friends, where now when somebody's struggling with their mental health, their fellow first responders are much more empathetic to them. Mm, Yeah, it's it's night and day and it it makes me emotional to, to see how far it's come. And I know that the sky's the limit you know, I'm cup half full guys. So I, you know, everybody will tell you, I'm, I always see the positive in everything, but it is, it's just so much better. I see chiefs and sheriffs now, instead of providing lip service, Hey, we're here for you. If you need us. No, the sheriff will walk up to you and say, we're here for you if you need us, but I'm assigning deputy Jones, who is trained in peer support and curriculum stress management. He's going to, he's going to walk with you for a while for the next month, whatever that looks like. But he's your man. He's your go-to person. And Deputy Jones doesn't report back to me as the sheriff. He's just going to help you however you need help. Um, What if you're uh, just a regular person, but you want to take PTSD training and things like that? Can regular folks sign up for it and pay, or is it just for first responders? So I'm employed by Blue Bonnet Trails Community Services, which is a nonprofit. So any class that I teach is, or any person I help, there's never a charge because Blue Bonnet pays me 40 hours a week. So- you know, like right now I'm, I'm on the clock, you know, not that it would matter, but I'm on the clock. I still would have done this regardless, but we support eight counties. So typically what we do is within our eight counties, that being said, if somebody from another county asks us to come in and do a debriefing or teach, we do, because at the end of the day, it's all about helping your brothers and sisters. There's, there's all kinds of training out there. The class that I teach is definitely geared for first responders. But anybody could go through and I could still show the same videos and do everything that I do the same way. And it would be beneficial to civilians, electricians and plumbers and whoever. It would still resonate with anybody. Okay. Gotcha. So, yeah, for, for anyone listening, if they're a first responder, now they have a resource and, you know, where to go. They can Google the name. And again, for civilians, I guess they could uh, they could also, if they wish you know, call up and see if they could take the class and what would be involved. So I guess uh, for anyone listening that's interested, those are the resources for them, right? There's a class that it's, it's, it's a class that I went to like 40 or 50 hours of training to teach called Mental Health First Aid. And Mental Health First Aid is an, an international training. So anybody that's listening can Google MFHA, Mental Health First Aid, MHFA, yeah. 
and find a mental health first aid class being taught in their community. They're everywhere. It's a training that originated in Australia. Australia is like on cutting edge of mental health. They're the bomb. Everybody needs to be like Australia. And this class is geared towards civilians. But first responders, it's geared for them as well. But it's it's a good class and it, it breaks down a lot of the stigmas and a lot of the judgment that you and me might have towards somebody with mental illness. And it's very, very informative. So if somebody can't find a PTSD one-on-one type class, mental health first aid is a training that would be beneficial to them. Yeah, I just looked it up. Okay. Yeah, that's excellent. I also would like for your your listeners and you to Google the initials E as in Edward, M as in Mary, D as in David, R as in Robert, EMDR. EMDR is a form of therapy. It stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. And it's a form of therapy. It's still regular therapy, but what it does is the therapist uses, whether it's a tap on your knees, a tap on your wrist, they can move their finger in your eyes, follow the finger, like the DWI test. You can put headphones on where it clicks back and forth, but it it replicates REM sleep. And what happens is when we're children and we are waiting for dad to walk up the stairs to spank us, or we see something really, really bad, like I did growing up in Detroit, if you don't reach REM sleep, there's a chance that you will not process the traumas that you've been part of in your day-to-day. And if you don't reach REM sleep and process those traumas, they never get processed. And then years later, they're up in your brain, they're not filed appropriately, and they cause chaos. And EMDR replicates REM sleep. And I would, you know, it would take me every bit of an hour to thoroughly explain this. So, and I know we don't have that kind of time, but I went to therapy in 07, 08, 09, 2010, and it was very, very helpful. 2012, I heard about EMDR therapy. I went to it just to see what it was all about. My breakthrough session was April 27th of 2012. Since April 27th of 2012, I've not had one incident of road rage. And I see I haven't been in an argument with anybody because so many of my traumas from my past were reprocessed through EMDR and are now stored in a folder. You don't lose the memories. You just lose the negativity, the, the consequences, the blowups and, and the arguing. All that goes, it just goes away because those memories are now stored in a safe place. So they're not causing that chaos anymore. Okay. No, that's a great, great suggestion. Yeah. Well, excellent. Uh, Chris, this has been a really great call. I'm very glad you came on and I, I really appreciate all the work that you do. Any other things I should have asked you that we didn't cover? Or if not, we'll we'll close out. I don't think so. I, you know, I... I Thank you for um, putting this word out there. Like I said, it's all about education and information. And, you know, just be your brothers and sisters keeper. And, and, and one of the things I teach in my class is when one of our deputies has a, a, a collision on duty, an hour later, the ER has got 100 cops there. But when our one of our deputies has a mental health breakdown and goes to the ER, nobody's there. Huh. And when one of our deputies is put on light duty for mental health, nobody's bringing him meals or mowing his yard or visiting him. And But if he had a heart attack or has cancer, they're doing chores for him and helping him and having fundraisers for him. Right. Right. And so the more people can look at the mental health aspect of this, just as they do as the physiological, I think the better we'll be. Okay. Well, excellent. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.